Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. They don't say they're social entrepreneurs. They say we are systems change people. We understand systems are complex and full of obdurate inertia, and it's going to take entrepreneurial activity all along that whole existing chain to change things. So they say we're systems change. And there's now a practice and a community of people who would say we're experts in systems change. It may be that the market doesn't understand yet um, the the potential of a new kind of uh, sanitation technology. And it, it may be that the market won't understand that for so long that it will never happen, right? And there, that's where I think entrepreneurs have to come in and make that potential visible, make it tangible, in a sense, make it visible to people. It may be you have to make it visible to not only consumers, but to producers who have to make the component parts, to engineers who will spend time thinking about the problem. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Mark Ventresca, an economic sociologist in the Strategy, Innovation, and Marketing Faculty at Said Business School, University of Oxford. Mark's main areas of expertise include market and network formation, entrepreneurship, governance, innovation, and technology strategy. He's a very distinctive view on the role of social entrepreneurs as network builders, how they create and strengthen nascent markets, and their increasingly important role as system builders. Thank you very much, Mark, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's a great privilege to speak to you, and I'm looking forward to hearing uh, about the work that you do, the ideas that you teach, and uh, what you've been up to recently in the whole area of social entrepreneurship. Oh, that's I'm very happy to be here. It's a great pleasure to have a chance to speak with you and to you know share some of the ideas and the work we're doing. Uh, really happy to be in this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Or you, do you want to tell me a little bit about what, what, what you cover with the skull social entrepreneurs? Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So I, uh, I've worked with the skull scholars for many years. Um, they come from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of them have uh, built organizations. Some of them have worked in uh, existing organizations. And what they share, I think, and they share this broad commitment, uh, which I will call a skull vision, though it's certainly not shared only with Skoll, is that um, let's use markets not for personal gain, but to shift institutional distributions of value and well-being. So let's use markets not as tools of personal wealth acquisition, but as ways to reset the equilibrium in existing systems. Uh, the foundation, Sally uh, Osberg and her colleagues have said this most succinctly in saying, let's let's imagine that uh, there is widespread injustice and that the way to change that injustice is to use markets to reset that from a single disadvantageous equilibrium to many equilibria that are uh, more generative and uh, fruitful for human well-being. And so the idea in a lot of that work is that you know, whatever you think of markets, they have become associated with kind of, I mean, broadly, I think everyone would say markets are about the efficient allocation of resources. And the argument here is that markets have become associated with personal wealth creation 
or personal wealth capture, um, as evidenced in, for example, a lot of contemporary tech uh, billionaires. Uh, and we've insufficiently attended to the distributional impacts of markets. And so what we do, what we um, work on is we start from the pieces of markets, like, you know, where, do, where does the supply of innovation come from? Where do you get kind of the institutions that shape markets? How do you make visible demand signals? How do you begin to um, encourage and highlight demand signals that may initially be thin or hard to observe. So in a sense, one, one way is to start with the traditional notion of a market supply and demand and say, oh, you know, the kind of formal theory, kind of formal neoclassical economic theory says there's lots of activity, people want things, people have things, and at some point you find an equilibrium. Um, the, the, there is an equilibrium that comes when sufficient numbers of people want to sell something that sufficient numbers of people want to buy. And that imagery, you know, goes back to the old political economy of Adam Smith and the imagery of an invisible hand. There's this idea that this happens in some, you know, amazing way that everyone pursues their own interests and then at some point there's an equilibrium where everyone gets what they want, everyone gets what they want, and that's a that's a market in equilibrium. And so what we do is we talk first a little bit about sort of alternatives to that view. Some people talk about the Austrian economists or the Schumpeterians. So Schumpeter was a guy who, like many other of his colleagues, started from really different premises. They gave primacy to the role of information. They also gave uh, a strong commitment to saying markets are never in equilibrium. They are always in disequilibrium. In other words, there is no there is no right moment when everything aligns and the market is in equilibrium. They instead said there's always disequilibrium. There's always contestation and becoming and flux. And they also, uh, many people would argue that Schumpeter and the Austrians were the first group of thinkers who made a positive case for the role of entrepreneurs, who didn't treat entrepreneurship as kind of residual, but actually said, you know, entrepreneurs are, and innovators are these interesting actors that play this positive role in, in some sense, aligning these pieces of the market in disequilibrium. And so, you know, we talk about that, and that leads you to think then about, oh, where, what's the supply of ideas and inventions and the supply of activities? A lot of contemporary, act, a lot of contemporary thinkers who, who think about innovation start from Schumpeter and say, okay, what, what this story tells us, because there isn't this equilibrium, they end up saying markets are actually driven by the evolution, by the, by the provisioning of supply of ideas and innovations and technological change. And the idea that there's a, an equivalent demand signal is secondary. So these guys would say supply, the supply of Technology drives the evolution of markets, and demand actually is follows. They would say it's inchoate, and what they mean by inchoate is they mean it doesn't take shape. It, that there are lots of wants and needs, but until those want, you know, hunger, security, water, clean sanitation, whatever, they would say the the the, the challenge is that neoclassical economists have sort of led us through this sort of magic of the supply and demand tools, assume that those wants and needs somehow take shape as meaningful economic uh, de uh, demand. And the, and the Schumpeterians would say, oh, until you 
Like you know that you're hungry, you know that you're feeling unsafe, or you know that you need, you know, that you want clean water. That's not demand in the economic sense until there's some form that that's expressed in that the market can recognize and see. And so, you, so the Schumpterians kind of have this asymmetric view that says supply, the provisioning of new kinds of capacity is what drives the evolution of markets, and then demand follows and takes shape. Um, so, for you know, a really colloquial example. Uh, people knew they wanted access to capital, but until the microfinance people got going, there was not a way to talk about that. There was no way to know what that looked like. And then microfinance came along and provided, you know, forms and rules and customs and conventions. And we got the imagery that said, oh, microfinance is relatively small amounts of money. Let's loan that money typically to women, usually in groups, because there are kind of social norms that organize that. So, so that that model of, of microfinance sort of began to be a kind of a tangible expression of that more diffuse underlying need or want. And so these guys, the Schumpterians would talk about things like dominant designs, what are the set of features and attributes that are available to help materialize that kind of inchoate demand into some form that makes sense. Um, so we, you know, we talk about things like that and then, Go further, we say, so actually then, uh, what, what you really are interested in here, supply and demand in their very, their very abstraction is what made them so useful for economists, right? Because they're so abstract, they can accommodate anything. The demand for food, the demand for security, the demand for light, the demand for heat. You can, and, you know, that it's the, the very abstraction makes it a general model. But in that abstraction, we lost all the particularity, all the groundedness, all the localness. And so then I think we start to say, okay, let's really understand what if markets aren't sort of this large, impersonal, abstract space where through some quasi-magical process, everyone finds what they want at a price that they're willing to pay or sell for. And so then we start saying, okay, let's think about markets as institutions. So as you probably know, another kind of contemporary view is moving toward understanding markets as institutional connections and linkages. Um, this is true across many of the social sciences. It's taken form, especially in economics, in what some people call evolutionary economics or two-sided markets. This guy named Al Roth just got the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for this. So this is a shift now from saying, let's step back from the idea of abstract supply and demand. Let's say, what are the institutions that you have to have in place? And like at this point, I would ask in the class, I'd say, so how many roles does it take to have a market? And people say two, buyer and a seller. Or they say one, you just need a commodity. Or they say three, you need a buyer and a seller and some kind of authority. You know, we kind of shift from the Schumpeterians, from the Austrians, who are really at core interested in saying there is no equilibrium, which is core to the neoclassical idea. You know, in the neoclassical model, kind of price is actually the expression of that equilibrium. That's why we care about price so much. Price is endogenously derived. Price, you know, like on a stock market, for example, is understood to, to embody all the relevant information, past, present, and future. And so the Schumpterians sort of critique that. They say there is no equilibrium. You know, there's no convenient thing called price that is arbitrating how the market should work. Instead, it's there's this asymmetry 
uh, supply of technology innovation drives the evolution of markets. Um, you know, so once we get once we get uh, the early automobiles, we get a market for cars. Did people know they wanted cars? No, they wanted to get somewhere faster. They didn't know they wanted cars. So the famous quote there is uh, the apocryphal quote is uh, uh, Henry Ford, the guy that mass produced automobiles in the U.S., is famous for saying, "If I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse." Right. So the imagery is de consumers demand side. Know, know the world in the idiom of what they have, not in the idiom of what's possible. Um, okay, so so then we go on from there. I think the more contemporary work is really on what you might call the institutions of markets, um, or as I said, these guys, the evolutionary economists, talk about two-sided markets. Um, the, the broad consensus there is that markets are actually uh, comprise some kind of institutional architecture, rules of engagement, rules of the game, conventions that help su support or settle areas of ambiguity. Um, I think where you know we see that most vividly and where people see that kn knowing it exists are in things like when people talk about market makers in a financial market. Market makers are the people who buy and sell when there's thin liquidity. They're the people that buy and sell stocks or commodities or whatever to basically build up enough information so that you can then begin to talk about a price for that commodity, right? So we understand that, that, that market makers are the people who step in when it's thin, when there's not enough demand, when there's not enough supply. But in the, in the kind of current arguments, institutionalists would say markets are really institutional architectures. Um, so if we, can, if we think of a stock market, somebody decides the opening hours of the market, somebody decides when we're going to trade, somebody sets rules for what it takes to be listed on the exchange, somebody sets rules for who can, what firms can be listed, what are the criteria they have to meet in terms of uh, information disclosed or activities disclosed. So we're, you know, we move away from the idea that markets just happen to the idea that somebody builds the architecture of markets, someone sets the rules of the game, someone establishes the conventions. And what I was saying was I um, sometimes I'll ask in class, I'll say, how many actors does it take to have a market? And people usually will say two, buyer and seller, right? That's how we think. Then someone may say, oh, one, as long as you've got something to sell, there'll be a market for it, right? Or something like that. And then someone will typically say, oh, it's three. You need a buyer and a seller and then some kind of an intermediary, someone to either, you know, conf uh, enforce good faith or calibrate between. And I'll say, oh, like, for example, if I have six chickens and you have six oranges, can I trade you six chickens for six oranges? Well, we have to agree on a convention. How many oranges is a chicken worth? And so people say that's, you know, that can either be convention, like a folk wisdom or something that we negotiate. But over time, it can also be some actor that settles that kind of activity. And then someone, and I'll usually push people, and then someone will say, well, actually, two actors, a buyer and a seller, that's a transaction. Is that a market? You know, and so we'll kind of work through cognitively. Is two actors? Well, not really. So then someone will say, well, we need really, we need two, two suppliers and one purchaser. 
I'm not saying, okay, what do we call that? Well, economists call that a monopsy. You've, monopsy. You've got two suppliers, and that's better because then there's choice and variety, but only one uh, consumer. And then, well, what if we have two consumers and one supplier? Oh, well, then that's a monopoly. We only have one supplier. So then someone will say, oh, what if, it must be four then. So you have two suppliers and two consumers. Oh, okay, that's how we get price. We, you know, we begin to see that four actors comprise the possibility of alternatives there's not a monopoly provision and then some will say five because you you know that's true you need four but then you also need an arbitrator or six or something and then we talk you know we talk about you know what's the role of having the supply and the demand the consumers and the producers but then what's the role of consumption of uh, of someone who arbitrates a judge a rule of law uh, some kind of a discretion and then if you think about it every culture has you know, matchmakers, and I had said earlier about market makers in the market, in cultural terms, like every culture has had uh, someone who was a marriage broker, a yenta in the old Yiddish, uh, but a, a trusted go-between who ensured the integrity of each of the families and, you know, solved, remembered kind of the background and history of everyone. So, you know, you realize we actually have lots of ideas around intermediaries in market. And so then, then I'll say, you know, one of the ideas here is contemporary theory kind of says intermediaries are bad, that intermediaries are, are um add a lot of costs. And so it's really familiar to say we need to disintermediate. Now, one of the arguments is that technology often disintermediates markets. It forces all that excess cost out and you just get pure interaction between the core players. And then I say something like, well, intermediaries though play a really important role. They help absorb ambiguity. They help absorb uncertainty. They help us find partners of one kind or another. So there, you know, I try to emphasize that in, in early markets especially, there are all kinds of in, uh, uncertainties, lack of information, uh, ambiguities that have to be dealt with. Um, and so you know, in, in that conversation, we've, we've moved from, in a sense, a kind of a stylized model of a perfect market in the neoclassical sense, full information, full activity, full engagement where price actually captures all the necessary information. You know, and that market may exist in theory, and it may even exist in a few commodities that are so standard and so stable and so familiar that there is very little uncertainty. But when we're talking about markets for healthcare or markets for sanitation or markets for new forms of food distribution or, you know, whatever, markets for social capital, markets for money that is not uh, pegged to the highest interest rate. Those markets are not perfect markets. They're not, they're full of ambiguity. They're full of actors. And this is then the, the interest in new markets of all kinds, what we could call nascent markets. That is markets where there's not yet well-structured social institutions, where there's not conventions about exchange, where we don't know what the product is yet, where there's still indeterminacy about the product. And so we draw on a lot of work that people have done on, on what they would call nascent markets. That is markets still being born, markets still in the making. To, un to recognize that a lot of the work of social entrepreneurs is really involved in creating, imagining, creating, building, and stabilizing markets that are... Uh, that don't yet have conventions associated with them, where the existing rule structures are unfamiliar. So 
for example, if you follow uh, the contemporary dialogue around the sharing economy in its different forms, right, whether it's Airbnb or neighborhood consortia or Uber or whatever, you know, what's what we're starting to realize, what we're starting to see there is that the initial idea of we have a platform with information that lets two parties, someone who's got a car and someone who wants a ride, come together in a new way. Um, is running into things like, well, who regulates that? And where do you get your business license? And are you an employee or are you actually an independent actor? And if you're an independent actor, cities are saying, oh, you need to get a license. You need to register as a business, right? So we, we start to see that in these early markets, there's lots of ambiguity. There's lots of uh, uncertainty. Intermediaries play really important roles. If you look at carbon markets, if you look at you know um, new social intermediary markets, there are lots of intermediaries that play really critical roles in stabilizing what the thing is, what the product or service is, who are the appropriate players, how should they interact. And, you know, in, in traditional economic theory, all those things kind of get worked out. They just happen. It's sort of like people, economists would talk about, oh, that's pre-market. It's before there's a market. It works out. And in a way, this, this work in the scholarship in the social sciences, the scholarship in management and strategy, scholarship coming out of innovation studies has kind of said to us, oh, we actually need to make that visible. We need to understand how does that get worked out and what happens there. Um, and I, the other thing I do with this, um, and the relevant part probably for what you've heard, is I talk about the work of system builders. System builder is an idea that comes out of a, a body of work on how um, late 19th century Europeans took the idea of electricity, which was then a contested scientific idea, and converted it into large-scale industrial provisioning of electricity. It's like a 40-year period, 1880s to 1920s, when all across Western Europe and the U.S., people started kind of saying, we want an alternative to light, you know, inchoate demand. We, we, we want an alternative to gaslight. It, you know, gaslight is great, but it's hard to deliver. It burns down cities. We have no way to control that. You know, there are all these problems. And people didn't say, oh, we want electricity. They said, we want a kind of illumination that is more stable and safer. And so then began, you know, decades of experimenting, harnessing electricity, which was still a contested idea. And then literally, not just building businesses, but literally inventing new kinds of capital, new forms of manufacture, new, kind, new kinds of turbines. You know, some, somebody had to do all this work of creating the capacity that made it possible to have large-scale industrial grid, electric grid systems across Europe. And this guy named Thomas Hughes... Yeah. I mean, that, that's very interesting um, and many many uh, issues you've raised there and and uh, questions and, uh, and and thoughts uh, just looking at the electricity example there yep. uh, where do profits fit in because presumably uh, some of the actors involved in this were motivated by the the idea of profits what if there are <laughs> aren't profits or are there low profits or there's ambiguity about levels of profits or it's pretty clear that there might be uh, you know low levels of profits yeah. See, well, this is the thing. We, you know, we're we're moving away from the idea that profit is the only driver of activity. So the example, it's a great question. The example today would be um, in 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 ways that are analogous to the system builders of the late 19th century, early 20th century. The people that built basically the deals cut between engineers and the state in the late 19th century that built large scale electricity grid systems today. And you may have talked to some of these students today all over um, 
particularly around uh, Eastern Africa, there are many of our alumni and you know many other people, of course, who are literally building off-grid electric. Yes. They're building yeah. alternatives, and they are not motivated by profit, though they find profit. And this is part of the social entrepreneurial imagery. It's like, can we find profit but also do other things? And so these guys are system builders, I think, in their own way. They've figured out alternative sources of energy. They traditionally, you know, we could imagine this. Some have used, tried to use biodiesel. Others have used uh, uh, electricity generated from, bio, from diesel generators that power cell towers. And they've worked out through complicated negotiations, deals with the cell tower providers to access that, you know, local electricity generated in every village. And then they've built large systems of sales, capacity building, information giving, you know, on the ground workforces. They've invented new jobs. They've invented new occupations. They've invented new com conventions to coordinate. Um, and they're in the same way, I wouldn't say in the same way, in a way that's analogous to the system building of the electricity grid systems. They are, you know, these firms like Off-Grid is our most prominent alumni group, Off-Grid Electric. They're inventing new conventions about how you assemble and access electricity, how you sell it, how you distribute it. Uh, you know, they are they're literally in these years building an architecture through practice, through insight, through creative energy to to begin to make conventional, oh, that's the way you do off-grid electricity. So it goes from where do we start, how do we do this, can we make a profit, how, you know, what drives us to do this, to, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years later, that will be a relatively stable, obvious way um, that you get electric energy and distribute it. Right, right. And so I think profit, I mean, it's a good question because profit was, you know, the, the argument, the traditional arguments is that you know, entrepreneurs are people that are special people who see something no one else can see. They see the potential for profit in some situation, and then they go in and they work really hard. And because they took that initial risk, they make a lot of money, right? That's the popular wisdom. And as you've correctly said, the story that I'm telling is much more, it says, oh, who knows if there's going to be profit? We don't even know what the thing is. We don't know what electricity is. You know, we know that people want light, but... We could experiment with reflecting moonlight. We could reflect with batteries, except batteries are expensive. You know, there are a dozen ways that we could have solved this uh, issue that people want more light. Right, right. Where they want heat, where they want whatever. Yeah. I think this is what we're seeing now. We're in this period of ferment when entrepreneurs broadly, social entrepreneurs as well, are experimenting with all kinds of really basic things, rethinking sanitation, rethinking access to near-term cash, rethinking access to water. They're in general thinking of not large-scale national systems, but rather local, more proximate uh, systems that use alternative, you know, alternative technologies. Yes. And I think your question is the right question because profit isn't what's motivating them. Yes. I think they want to make money. They want to become economically viable, but they're motivated by a more um, 
varied range of drivers. Yes, and it's, it's interesting you say that because as well, you know, uh, these organizations also depend on access to capital and capital is also, there's a lot of talk about impact uh, investment in various different forms of capital, but the availability of capital that isn't looking for reasonable levels of returns is not as much as one would expect. So clearly their behavior, their ability to thrive, their ability to grow, their ability to dominate in particular market settings is going to be determined to some degree by their ability to access uh, capital mm -hmm. and to, to meet the needs and of capital providers. That's exactly right. And so that's why you see what we're seeing right now the last 15, 20 years are new forms of capital providers, right? We're, we're re-architecting what does it mean to access capital? How do you access it? Whether that is finding people who are interested in patient capital and willing to accept relatively lower rates of return and able to fund and support these kind of transformational initiatives. Whether we think of things like crowdfunding as new models of how you can raise capital, not from a few wealthy institutions, but from many um, moderately uh, resourced individuals. In other words, I think, I guess what I would stress is these are all the right questions. And when we look, we actually see many kinds of answers. And this is at the core of that project I was saying to you. This is a period of ferment. We're experimenting. We're figuring out, yeah, we need capital. Okay, the way you see get capital is go to a bank or go to a, a wealthy individual or, or eventually raise money on a, on a stock market, right? There were, there were relatively limited ways to waste capital. Now there are many more ways. You have all these uh, online crowdfunding sites. You have angel investors who want to be involved. You have patient capital, patient investors who are open to longer term um, uh, uh, value in return for shorter term, less uh, immediate return. Right. And, yeah. and in each of those cases, right, in each of those cases, like you have to, you have to see this, in each of those cases, we're experimenting um, with new forms. We don't know what the right, for, you know, is it 1% or 2% or 3% versus 7% or 8% or 9%? We don't know. Yes. We're, we're aggregating groups of people who say, I'm willing to go for 2%. In a lot of um, in a lot of interesting projects in electrification or sanitation or housing, the idea is okay. Let's find a couple of donors who want eight percent, but then we can find seventy percent of the money from donors that want one percent. Okay, now we've got this spread where we can we can we can provide the donors who want eight percent. We can provide them what they want and still have a longer term profile to uh, develop the infrastructure in ways that will be appealing for the people who are satisfied with a relatively lower rate of return. Well, that's fascinating, right. this, the, 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 as you point out, the, the, the state of development that it's, it's, it's all unfolding, as you say, and, 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 and these new models are emerging. What, how does it change the perspective of a social entrepreneur, would you say, having these insights into you know, market development? Um, Say, mm, say, say, you know, somebody who's, you know, uh, been in Africa working and, and sees an opportunity and wants to help and things and, and launches in uh, and with, with great resilience, uh, which is necessary. But um, these insights are, um, they give you a particular lens, don't they, of, of looking at, um, you know, how the market develops and how, uh, and, and, and I guess the, a lot of questions. I'm just wondering, have you any thoughts on how, how, how that would focus your activity? Um, so, yeah, I think that, I think that the, 
the way what I was talking about in terms of the idea of system building really says um, if you're trying to pioneer a new kind of service or if you're trying to change how we think about housing or if you want to solve long-term problems of water provisioning um, the original idea and for many people a really powerful idea is oh the market will take care of it if there's value there the market will find it so i'm sure you heard have heard some version of the old joke about economists there are two economists are walking along there's a 20 pound note on the floor yes, yes. Yeah, right so 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 that imagery said okay the market has this magical quality it can see opportunities that no one else can see and it rewards those opportunities, right? If you think that way, that's a very, um, it's a very compelling way to think. Um, but it also says what you do as an individual is sort of irrelevant. I think the kind of conversation we're having right now says, oh, it may be that the market doesn't understand yet um, the, the potential of a new kind of uh, sanitation technology. And it, it may be that the market won't understand that for so long that it will never happen, right? And there, that's where I think entrepreneurs have to come in and make that potential visible, make it tangible, in a sense, make it visible to people. It may be that you have to make it visible to not only consumers, but to producers who have to make the component parts, to engineers who will spend time thinking about the problem. In other words, I think the argument here is a lot of these issues don't just happen because the market realizes there's inexhaustible demand for healthy sanitation, right? In some sense, that's an, it's an inchoate demand signal. It's not clear. And so I think the, the insight is entrepreneurs then are really people that actually help make visible, make coherent, connect, build the networks that connect uh, the disparate pieces. You know, once you have in place a really well-functioning electricity power uh, capital market, then getting capital to build large-scale grids, large-scale uh, turbines and stuff, once that's in place, that becomes routine. But getting that to be in place took 30 years of work in the 1890s and 1880s, excuse me, when we didn't know what an electricity turbine was, we didn't know the kind of risks of funding capital into not yet built electricity grid systems. Those same things have to happen today. And I think the idea of a system builder, the recognition that marks are institutional, uh, markets are institutional arrangements sort of gives people entrepreneurs on the ground, a sense of what, where could they put energy, what are the risks they encounter, what has to happen in terms of stitching together systems that don't yet exist. Right. Like, um, right. right. Let's that, for a second. Once gaslight was pervasive, we had well-developed sources of gas. We understood the risks of using gas. We began to build, uh, we began to architect public buildings, then homes that had gaslight infrastructure, that is pipes running through them. You know, we began to build experience with that. So over time, that became less dangerous, more familiar, more stable. We understood how to explore for gas. We, you know, companies began to understand how you convert and move gas from where it's sourced to commercial centers where it can be used, right? That all took time to do. And in traditional arguments, people would say, yeah, the market did that. The market saw those opportunities and solved them by rewarding some people with cash as capital, by punishing people that did it wrong. You know, we, we disembody that activity into, oh, the market did all that. 
today for off-grid electric, right? That's not happening. We understand, no, people have to build it. They have to go to meetings. They have to meet with the providers. They have to meet with the cell towers. They have to try out different ways of managing human resources. They have to recruit people who've never sold electricity before. They have to give them templates to do that. You know, those all take lots of energy and lots of time. They take a different set of skills. And in a way, that's what entrepreneurs learn. They learn, oh, if you want to pioneer stuff in sanitation or housing or uh, electricity or whatever, you've got to actually, you you know, you've got to build the system while you're running it. You've got to, you are involved in doing that. Right, right. So I think it changes, it changes, you know, in kind of more formal terms, it changes both what people recognize as the task and also what people recognize as the need, the kind of skills they need. Right, right. That's fascinating. And I just thinking, um, uh, raises the question about the number of, uh, uh, I guess, parties required to make this happen. Because if you're a, a sole uh, social entrepreneur trying to work on this on your own, um, as against somebody who has alliances or working with connections exactly. with various different kinds of groups and builds that. I mean, to what extent? I mean, that's something that I haven't come across so much in, in, in interviewing social entrepreneurs, the sense that uh, they were collaborating, bringing together groups of diverse right. either skills right. or is, relationships right. this is, to, to solve exactly the problem. Right. And, and what you're pointing to is what has become recognized as a challenge. So um, have you heard this idea of collective impact? Does that mean anything to you? Uh, no, no. So collective impact is a phrase that is being in, increasingly used by funders, by foundations, by funders who say, you know, the issue is we know that you can build a single enterprise but that that often takes this kind of infrastructure. And so you may spend three years building this enterprise and then eventually it just, it, it fails. You run out of funds. You haven't been able to get kind of a stable standard set of activities going and that fails. And so a lot of funders have banded together and started saying, let's, we're interested in collective impact. We're interested in people working together, building whole systems of organizations that are all doing similar things. They begin to learn from each other. They begin to work on legislation together. They begin to use language so that everyone's using the common phrases or common terms so that it becomes more publicly recognizable, right? So you can think of all the ways that that happens. The, the part, the question you just raised, um, Pergola, is really critical. This is in a way where there's been, I think, shifts in the idea of a social entrepreneur. If we want to loosely say social entrepreneurs came from a group of, you know, social change activists or uh, philanthropists, you know, choose your favorite <laughs> form there. But if we say that came and they said, oh, social, and, and this is the thing that you know well, if they said, okay, if social entrepreneurs are just like entrepreneurs, except they have social concerns, not just making money is their only concern. They have these more varied value sets where they care about solving injustice or bringing fresh water to make it available to people. So they're just like entrepreneurs, but they have a social mission or a social agenda. Um, the, the challenge there, as you probably know over the years, has been people saying, okay, that's great. The problem is you started from the wrong idea of what an entrepreneur is. You started from a kind of a folk hero notion of an entrepreneur. These remarkable special people who kind of see opportunities and do something that no one's done before because they're special people. Um, and then that became, as you probably know, a pretty pervasive critique 
of acumen, of skull, of all these guys, of all these agencies and all these institutions, that they were, they were in some sense starting from what was already kind of a contested idea, or you could even say a contaminated idea, the, the solo entrepreneur, and then putting the adjective social onto the front of that and saying, oh, that means these people do the same thing, but in pursuit of social good, not just financial good. Um, and I think this is where in the last 15 years and the last 10 years, lots and lots of ink has gotten spilled, lots and lots of debate, lots and lots of people who end up saying, actually, system building is much more like what social entrepreneurs do. It's much less like the single person that goes out and by dint of you know wit and intelligence and hard work changes the world. It's not that that doesn't happen, but when you begin to push on those stories, you realize, oh, they actually were working with a lot of people. They were mobilizing a community. They were coordinating with many different parts of the system. And so, um, as, as, I don't know how much you are kind of talking to people today or reading stuff, but you know, I think this is now where even some of the signature partners like the Skull Foundation or uh, the other large uh, supportive agencies would say, you know, it takes a ton of energy to run a business. It takes a lot of energy to be an entrepreneur, let alone be an entrepreneur who isn't making enough money. You know, just keeping your books balanced takes a lot of energy. Yes. And what we found now with, you know, many, many studies of social entrepreneurs is that it's exhausting. Over time, they run out of energy. Yeah. They are running a business. They're running a small business. And that takes a lot of energy to do. And so then the question now is, okay, is this, is this a good idea still? Is it a good idea to have all these solo, only, only lonely social entrepreneurs running around? And it's what you said. When you talk to people, they typically don't talk about partnerships. They talk about, oh, I've got this idea. We're going to bring you know, water to Ghana. We're going to bring clean water. We've got this technology. We're going to do this. And they, and they don't say, oh, what we need to do is we need to build relationships with the state with key funders, with the international agencies already there, with community groups, you know, groups in the community on the ground. That's my work. Yes. And this is where I think people yes. like me and a lot of other people, you know, me, me as like a second voice, but lots of others would say that was the problem with the word entrepreneur. It cued people to a whole set of focuses and activities that were actually not what social entrepreneurs do. That, you know, it was too much of a solo activity. And not enough recognizing that to change systems takes extraordinary amounts of coordinated work across many different people. Yes. So I work yes. with a lot of groups. Sorry, I, was, I work with a lot of groups in the UK and Canada, US. You probably know them too. That would say, "Oh, we're systems change people." They don't say we're social entrepreneurs. They say we're systems change. The finance innovation lab in London, the food security people, the uh, the uh, future fish, the global fishery sustainability in Chicago. They would all. They don't say they're social entrepreneurs. They say we are systems change people. We understand systems are complex and full of obdurate inertia, and it's going to take entrepreneurial activity all along that whole existing chain to change things. So they say we're systems change, and there's now a practice and a community of people who would say we're experts in systems change. And I think that's actually starting to change not the ideology like at colleges of what social entrepreneurship is, but at a policy level, a more developed understanding of if you do want to change healthcare provisioning for you know neonatal mortal, uh, maternal mortality in you know in England, 
or if you do want to change provisioning of new forms of sanitation, or if you do want to change the kind of financial uh, inclusion, that's something that you need lots of people who want to make things change, but they actually have to be coordinated. Um, and so we come back to this idea of collective impact. We come back to people who say, you know, systems change. Let, let me give you an example that I think is really clear. Um, there's an organization in Chicago called The Future of Fish. It's a woman who was a journalist by origin, a woman named um, Cheryl Dahl, said, you know, about eight years ago, global fisheries are really in danger of exhaustion. They're not sustainable. How do we change that? And she brought together a team of people and they said, let's look at the global fisheries in terms of current kind of markets and institutional capacity. And they did and they sent out ethnographers and they studied and they talked and they interviewed. They said, you know, from our analysis, it seems like the value chain of the fisheries, there are the famous wholesale fish markets like Tsujiki in Tokyo. And then there's how you get the fish out of the ocean. Then there's how you get the fish to markets. Then there's how you grade and identify and name and uh, prepare the fish. And then there's how you get it to retail customers. And they said, from our analysis, there are really 17 interfaces that sit between fish in the ocean and fish on the table. Um, and they said, at each of those interfaces, we are going to encourage and curate and cultivate entrepreneurs to work on that interface. And they've done that now for five or six years. And now they're in the point of saying, okay, now we need to reconnect. We need to stitch back together all these nodes that are alternative. They've done whatever it was, whatever that interface was. They've done it in a different way. They've created institutions and conventions. They've created local markets. They've created alternative skills. They figured out, you know, all these interfaces now have little alternative entrepreneurial activities. And they said, now we have to stitch that back into a system. We have to recreate an alternative system. So their view is, you know, you could say all those folks at each of those places were social entrepreneurs. And you could have imagined people saying, oh, we're going to go in and really make sure that fish is labeled correctly, that there's a lot of deceit and incompleteness in how we label fish. You could imagine someone saying, we're going to make fishing more safe, both for fishers and fish. We're going to work on dolphins and nets. You know, you know, you could imagine all the issues people could have taken on and built sort of small, not small, they had built social enterprises that would have had a vision and a purpose and a mission and would have done stuff. And the problem, and this is the systems change argument, all those local initiatives wouldn't have added up to a change in the system. And in fact, many of those small initiatives and enterprises might have gotten crushed by the inertia in the system over time, right? And so this is sort of, this is where probably what you're hearing from some of the people you've talked to, this is this shift from saying, you know, the word social entrepreneur, the, the, the kind of social stereotype of what an entrepreneur is, an old solo person working hard against all odds, you know, exhausting themselves, special vision, commitment, concern, that actually may have worked against the longer term sustainability of these efforts to do systems change, to, to broadly you know, change how we deal with uh, fresh water in Somalia. Well, that's fascinating. It, it really is fascinating. I mean, I, I have been also surprised by, in a sense, um, it was one of my motivations behind the podcast was to try and, uh, you know, share stories of what people are doing in quite in-depth uh, focus in particular markets. 
for exactly this reason to try and share the you know uh, and 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 uh, contribute to the dialogue and yet it because of the nature of the challenge, I think, as a social entrepreneur, it is so challenging that they are involved in, 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 in the most mundane activities as well as strategic, but, you know, and, and exhausted and so uh, full on with what they're doing. They don't really have the opportunity to, to, to uh, either uh, work out what other people are doing, uh, best practice in, in these kind of environments. And to some degree, I think uh, it also impacts their ability to cooperate and to think about building partnerships with uh, other uh, parts of the system, as it were. Um, so it's f fascinating to hear um, about this work um, mm -hmm. and, and the, this thinking. And I suppose um, the, the, the danger possibly, <laughs> or maybe so bold on the one hand, of, of an organization, because um, it, it is a balance, I suppose, between these smaller, more flexible, more spontaneous and responsive organizations but it's this context you're talking about that guides them and brings them together in some ways that they're working in, in a united kind of way. And I'm just wondering about the role of the finance here, because more than anything else, I imagine that, uh, you know, an enlightened uh, or uh, a breed of financiers that is aware of this and guides social entrepreneurs and, you know, rather than it necessarily coming through some kind of uh, formal organizational kind of bringing together. Exactly. But if the financiers themselves have got this message, then they will be saying, you know, I'm not really interested in talking to you about your project. I would be interested in when you come back and tell me, you know, you have these six other people you're talking to. You and that's, give me and that's that. exactly right. Yeah. And that's what's happening with funders. As I said, you know, collective impact has really come out of the foundation community, but it's spreading because it, it resonates. It's like, yeah, all this energy goes into six people working separately. What if they work with each other? What if they built up common capacity? It's also exactly as you said, the evolution that's going on in finance itself. So now we have patient capital, we have social capital markets, we have, you know, a number of investment firms and funds that say our goal is adequate returns, not disproportionate returns with demonstrable social impact. And that then sets off a whole set of conversations. What is social impact? How do we know? How do we measure it? Right. So what you're getting at is exactly correct. It's that there's this kind of spill on effect in all the infrastructure, whether it's legal arrangements or finance, you know, all those worlds are themselves engaging in this conversation now. Oh, what does it mean to map to materialize social value? What does it mean to materialize impact? How do we do that? What are the conventions we create? So this, you know, this just sound really familiar, right? It's exactly what we just said about how markets get built. There are now professional communities, occupational communities. People are saying, what is it? What's an adequate rate of return? How do we, how do we, how do we balance? You know, is three percent return okay if we're having demonstrable impact on bringing sanitation into the poorest parts of a city versus eight percent if we're not? And how do we, how do we, how do we calibrate those trade-offs? Yes. Um, if yes. we're gonna, you know, I'll give you an example, another example that you know is probably familiar to you, but there's a lot of talk right now about. Um, in many parts of Canada, particularly, but I think also in the UK and the US, but especially in Canada, that's where I've heard this, a lot of growth in the 60s, 70s, baby boomers, growth in schools, community centers, churches, you know, a lot of the community, a lot of the, the community facing agencies expanded. And so churches and community centers and public centers and so forth bought land and built centers or schools or churches or whatever. So 40 years on, 
right now, those mortgages are all paid off. And in fact, there's much less demand for, you know, this population, the cohort population are smaller. And so those agencies are all going to sell off that land. And here's here's the way that people, this is a group in Canada interested in transforming or redressing inequality in the Canadian economy. They're saying, okay, they're going to sell that land off. They're going to sell it off. It's been mission-dedicated land, community-facing land and buildings used in the, for, for common good. Again, whether you think of that as religion or education or community activity or whatever, it was, it was land that w- and buildings that were focused on common wealth, common good, common well-being. We're going to sell that land. Okay, what's happening? Well, who's going to buy it? Our developers who are going to build condos, right? Because that's what we need now. <laughs> and they're going to buy the land, you know, at a fair price. I'm sure, you know, let's say they buy it for, let's say they buy some land in Toronto or Vancouver or something for, let's say, $50 million. Make up a number, $50 million Canadian. Okay, then they're going to build condos, and then they're going to sell those condos, and they're going to make $400 million, right, Canadian. Um, and those developers are going to make a lot of money. And the problem is, of course, those people that have held the land, they sold the land. So it's, you know, their problem, not the, not their problem. So these guys are then saying, and this is like a big, it's a big credit union named Van City in Vancouver, right. uh, and a bunch of people think about housing. They're saying, could we create, and exactly what we're talking about right now, could we create new funding vehicles that would recognize the the claim that the current landholders, the churches and community groups and stuff have, and that they would share in those profits. Can we imagine new funding vehicles that would allow those current holders to partner with developers, not sell to them, partner with them, and then realize or take part in the disproportionate profits come along later? You know, in other words, could we imagine new kinds of social arrangements that would either give them the current hold, uh, the current property owners a, a share in the overtime stream of value that comes, or where they could retain control and actually can we build an industry where uh, a, a cohort of responsible developers, let's call them responsible developers, would come in and do on spec, on speculation, the development of the land as agents of the original property owners. Right. See what I'm saying, yes, right? That's and those are all, yeah. see, yeah. that's social entrepreneurship. That yes. is, that's yeah. imagining new forms of legal ownership, new forms of coordinated activity, new forms of working between developers and bankers that would not, in a sense, and I know this is, you know, controversial language, but that would not cut out the owners at time zero, yes. but would keep them in the mix. And it would also mean then the developers wouldn't make an enormous amount of money. They'd make good profits, but the churches and community centers and others would also get some of those profits. And so in a sense, that's redressing inequality. It's meaning, you know, they would get, they would still make, you know, 30% on the deal, not 150%. Yes, that's right, and and, and, and this, yeah, ongoing. And ownership you could think about is. that. You could think about that in industry after industry. You could think about how, you know, it's become the norm. Developers say, "Well, we need 100 percent, 50 percent return to take the risk." And it's like, okay, so then we'll build right risk architectures that mean you can take it for 30 percent, 
You see what I'm saying? This is the this is the infrastructure change, what you could call systems change. Yes, I it, think... it's it's, uh, it's I think it's it's fascinating that these ideas are evolving. And um, I recently came across a case uh, where um, I, I was interviewing somebody who runs a platform, and it's this whole idea of platform technologies. It's actually a platform to raise uh, for crowdfunding uh, for social for social good. And he was talking, uh, the guy who founded this, about the difficulty he had raising money for his platform. And this echoed something, uh, a conversation I'd had with another social entrepreneur uh, a little bit earlier. And he was talking about the same problem, that finding investors that are willing to support platform technologies, that support other technologies, that support other technologies in a sense, exactly. right. other That's interactions, true. shall we say, in a marketplace. But this was because it couldn't be tied to any one end user group that were going to benefit. It, mm -hmm. They had enormous difficulty and said that there's a, 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 a real shortage of funders that are out <laughs> there to, to take that mm -hmm. kind of risk, to understand that kind of problem. That's right. That's right. And this is, you know, what you just said is exactly the point I'm making, right? And so partly what I try to do in this class is I try to equip people to say, you have to lose your native view of markets as neoclassical, efficient redistribution mechanisms. And you're thinking about infrastructure and system building, and that's really transformative for people, right? It gives them a way to understand what you just said. And to say, you know, I'm so my task is not, it may not be being on the ground bringing, you know, fresh water to kids in Ghana. It may be working at the IFC, the, the International Finance Corporation, to pioneer new kinds of financial models that are going to allow a group of new kinds of investors to pool their resources to fund the kind of capacity building it will take to eventually get, you know, water on the ground kids in Ghana or whatever right Brilliant. and this is the this, and this is I mean this is something I, I think again it, it turns on saying these incumbent institutional arrangements didn't just happen they developed over decades or centuries yes and you know we're not going to change them today by doing something different there's enormous inertia there there's enormous ability to absorb dis uh, uh, any kind of disruption yes yes because uh, thank you, Mark. It's been fascinating. It's been a very, very interesting uh, conversation and full of sure. full of great insights uh, for yeah. social entrepreneurs, policymakers, and for everyone out there. So I thank you so much, uh, and I wish you the best with with all your work, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.